This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we ask if the media are getting it right on the rights of trans people and looming alert level changes clearly can't come soon enough for Aucklanders who are over it, including some media hosts who are now telling themselves off for going over the top. Obviously calling the, the Deputy Prime Minister petulant is probably not the best form by me. But before all that, Facebook reached out to the news media here this week just after its all-powerful founder rebooted the trillion-dollar company as Meta for a brave new virtual world that it's planning for us all. But the real-world problems of its past in the present are still plaguing the tech titan. So where is all this heading? What we're really trying to do now is really, you know, recognise the the goal in New Zealand is to support, you know, a sustainable and diverse and robust ecosystem. And so we want to make sure that we're offering different solutions for publishers, you know, no matter where they are in their digital transformation journey. um, Hopefully there's a solution in here that will work for them and help them um, participate more in that digital transformation journey. That was Mia Garlick, the Director of Policy for Australia and New Zealand for Facebook on RNZ's Morning Report last Thursday, outlining its plans to help New Zealand's media with their digital transformation. But the world's largest social network had a digital transformation of its own last week when the all-powerful founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg suddenly announced that Facebook Incorporated had a brand new identity. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Well, Facebook will still be known as such, but the rebadged parent company's new plan is creating what Mark Zuckerberg called a virtual metaverse for us all to socialise in digitally in about five years from now. And the Meta boss unveiled that in distinctly Zuckerbergian style. Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh Who made this place? It's awesome. (laughs) Right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, This place is amazing. (laughs) But while Mark Zuckerberg wants to point users to a new company with an upbeat, new forward-facing vision, Vice.com's take was Zuckerberg announces fantasy world where Facebook is not a horrible company. Because incorporating all that we do, as Mark Zuckerberg himself put it there, also involves some pretty reputationally damaging stuff in Facebook's past and its present. And we now know a lot more about that because of former Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen. She teamed up with a PR agency and 17 separate media outlets recently, and her leaks have been making headlines for the past three weeks all over the world. For instance, the Sunday show on TBNZ1 last weekend included this. Unquestionably exacerbating hate. These are the words a whistleblower used this week to describe Facebook. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. But now, in a watershed moment... But that wasn't the reason that Facebook, which rarely responds to news media requests for interviews, was on Morning Report last Thursday here on RNZ National. They were announcing a four-stage plan to help out New Zealand's media. We're launching our first audience development accelerator and grant funding program in New Zealand. And so what that's designed to do is bring together 12 publishers from regional, digital and culturally diverse publications um, so they can come together and try to innovate and learn from experts and really collaborate on new strategies to drive business growth both on and off Facebook. Then secondly, uh, we're partnering with the International Centre for Journalists and we'll be um, establishing the Meta Aotearoa News Innovation Advisory Group and that group will give us advice and guidance as we roll out the Accelerator and Grant Program. 
Thirdly, we're hosting our first virtual Facebook New Zealand News Day, and that's going to come up on the 26th of November um, very soon. And that is really designed to sort of have scaled um, our, and dedicated coaching for all newsrooms across the country. And then fourthly, we're looking into uh, what additional investments we can make in innovation, video and technology to promote newsroom sustainability in New Zealand. And Mia Garlick from the company formerly known as Facebook hoped that this would be the result of all that. A stronger New Zealand news ecosystem and for me personally as a media junkie, great articles that I can enjoy online. But on News Talk ZB on Thursday morning, Mike Hosking was sceptical that anything like that would result from this new announcement. Here we get a training and grant system. Uh, an audience development accelerator program would bring 12 publishers together from regional, digital and culturally diverse publications to innovate, learn from experts and collaborate on strategies to improve their business on and off Facebook. A grant funding program is attached to it. It would also train New Zealand publishers to grow and engage digital... I mean, it's a fine. I mean, if you want to go along, sounds like a fun day with a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits. Facebook's four-stage scheme could be handy for some publishers, but nothing like as handy as the multi-million dollar payments that Google and Facebook have struck with news media in Australia to carry their news because their government threatened to change the law to force them to pay for that. Uh, just ask me this question. Would you rather be News Corp, Channel 7, Channel 10 and ABC banking millions... Or would you rather be in New Zealand launching your training and grants program? Well, Mike Hosking was clearly underwhelmed with Facebook's helping hand for our media this week. But what about New Zealand's biggest publisher of news and employer of more journalists than any other? Stuff. After the 2019 mosque atrocity in Christchurch, which was live streamed on Facebook, Stuff stopped advertising on the platform and posting its news to Facebook. In mid-2020, Stuff's chief executive Sinead Boucher told MediaWatch she wasn't interested. Uh, no, I haven't had any meetings with Facebook here, but that's not to say that they haven't um, reached out. It's just that, you know, the sort of things that they offer or um, want to engage with are, are things that don't actually help us or contribute to us in any way. And evidently her arm's length attitude hasn't changed since then. This week, Stuff reported its own boss as saying this. They have run these kinds of accelerators or funding programmes in various ways over the years. They are designed to bind news media more tightly to their platforms and to increase publishers' reliance on Facebook and therefore ensure a supply of high-quality content for Facebook for free. But is that what this is all about? The leading researcher of the relationship between the online platforms and New Zealand's news media is Dr Maria Mililati from the Auckland University of Technology's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. And she's also looked at how overseas media have managed their relationships with the titans of tech. And currently she's writing a book about Google, Facebook and the New Zealand media. I don't think Facebook wants to do anything what uh, doesn't actually benefit them. They have said that only one point percent of all the content which is distributed on the platform is news. So I don't think they have inherent interest in the news. When they launch in this kind of accelerator programs and subscription programs, these are all implemented on that platform. It benefits the Facebook because it kind of binds these news corporations to use the platform more. It means that you have to be on a Facebook to, in the first place to actually add those subscriptions or get more subscriptions. I think what they announce here, to me, is almost like insult. 
Yeah, because, I mean, you yourself have, have researched this. You recently had an article published on the website of the International News Media Association where you talked to some independent publishers, some of whom said that things like Google subscribe were pretty useful to, to them. Uh, others had uh, good experiences with Facebook's accelerator program. This isn't to be sniffed at, is it, this sort of assistance? Because one thing news media big and small in this country need to do is bring in digital subscriptions from individuals. And this is one way to do it. Absolutely the way to go. And anything that gives that boost for the news media is good. While the news companies are doing it inside the platform ecosystem, it really integrates them even more tightly. Yeah, the fundamental principle with the likes of Google and Facebook is that they don't want to be responsible for media. They don't want to be put in that position where people can say you're effectively the publisher here, not just a platform distributing content. But I mean, in Australia, uh, Facebook has, for example, teamed up with the Walkley Foundation, which is a journalism uh, umbrella group, $15 million in an Australian news fund, uh, as well as uh, things to support newsroom innovation and subscriptions and so on, which they're now talking about for New Zealand. So could this be the start of something bigger? I doubt it, because if you look at how this is said in, in uh, Australia, that $15 million, it's more for you know, content-oriented funding. But uh, also think about that, you know, that 15 million is split with different news organizations. We don't know what the package here in New Zealand uh, is. There's no dollar terms. And if you think that there's 12 news organizations uh, included, uh, that's what I took from that uh, announcement. But it's not actually really a lot. Well, um, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB was quite dismissive of this. He said, look, over in Australia, um, partly because the government acted, Google and Facebook have had to put millions into uh, pay millions to Australian news media creators uh, to carry their content. Here, he said, you know, he kind of dismissed this as um, a bit of digital help and a few training days with biscuits. Um, but you could it be a case of careful what you wish for? Because you've also researched the payments to news publishers uh, from Google and Facebook and different ways around the world. The benefits are not always obvious and some publishers miss out altogether. So could it be a case of careful what you wish for um, in trying to mimic what Australia's done? Yes, there is an element in that way that I looked at, you know, the, the payment systems, where the payments from Google and Facebook have gone. Google and Facebook payments both went uh, to same big uh, media companies, which are already dominant, benefiting those who are already strong. The local news outlets were mainly left out, and if they get some money, so they are something like you know, $25,000, New Zealand dollars, they are on the level that, you know, they don't boost any sustainability there. And finally, Maria, uh, do you believe that in a few years' time, as Mark Zuckerberg is saying, uh, we might all be living and socialising in this metaverse that uh, he's dreamed up? Uh, I can't predict. You know, we've been talking about AI, virtual reality and everything you know, for a long time. And I'm sure that these tools are coming at some form and they're going to be utilised, but I have no idea. But I kind of you know, hope that he would actually disappear to the metaverse. <laughs> but if, if uh, Facebook does become you know, get the first mover advantage in, in this world of AI uh, in the way that it has in social networks. Will news media editors and executives be looking at this and thinking, actually, we do have to build a strategy that might take this into account if Facebook is serious about the metaverse? Yes, you know, anything what they actually launching and if they are, you know, thinking that they're building and moving audiences, uh, yeah, you have to look at. And I, I know that, you know, a lot of, you know, the news corporations are, looking at that space. But hey, I'm not expert in that space.
That was Dr. Miria Mililati from the Auckland University of Technology's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. And she's the author of lots of research about Google, Facebook and the New Zealand media. And she's currently working on a new book all about that. Now, in the wake of the recent revelations in the Facebook files that we heard about earlier, some pundits are now pondering whether the phenomenally profitable company formerly known as Facebook might now be forced to face the responsibilities that come with its unparalleled reach and clout. And this week, a leading expert in artificial intelligence, Professor Stuart J. Russell from Berkeley in the US, made a strong case for that in this year's BBC Wreath Lectures. And there to see that was Rory Kethlin-Jones, the BBC's long-serving chief technology reporter. I heard a great expert on artificial intelligence the other night uh, giving a lecture in which he compared Facebook to Chernobyl as a kind of wake-up call (laughs) to the dangers uh, of this particular technology. Here in New Zealand just this week, Facebook suddenly popped up putting forward a, a kind of four-step project. They're going to be offering you know, seminars on how to use Facebook tools, grants to media. They've formed an advisory board. I mean, this is not like Australia. It's not actually giving the media money to carry journalism, nothing like that. In the end, though, it's going to be pocket money to the likes of Facebook and Google, and they may, you know, they may grumble about it, but they won't see it as a major threat to their business models. Don't forget, these are two businesses which... What they've captured in an extraordinary fashion is the mobile advertising industry, the fuel for the, the whole sort of mobile Internet, which is obviously is a huge business. And while they've got that kind of control, they won't worry about being asked to send a few dollars uh, to this news organisation or that. That's Rory Kethlin-Jones, who retired from the BBC this week after more than 20 years covering technology, and that's a job he held before Facebook was even founded in Mark Zuckerberg's university dorm room. Rory has also charted the influence of big tech on life and in the media in a new book called Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. And next weekend here on Media Watch, we'll hear all about that and whether Rory thinks we will all be living in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse just a few years from now. Earlier this week, Tyree MP Ingrid Leary arrived at her electorate office to find her windows covered in anti-trans graffiti. The attack was denounced from all corners, with Leary herself saying it was cowardly and a sad reflection of the vandals' values. But despite that condemnation, it still felt like a sign that the culture war over trans rights overseas might be migrating here in Aotearoa. An anti-trans movement is quite entrenched now in the UK, where segments of the media have hosted overheated claims, counterclaims and commentary about trans issues. Just last week, for example, the BBC published an article about lesbian women feeling pressured into sex with trans women. And that was based on an unrepresentative survey of just 80 women, and it quoted a former adult film star, Lily Cade, who recently called for trans women to be executed or even lynched. The BBC then removed Cade's contribution to that article, but the broadcaster maintained it was an important piece of journalism nonetheless. And that article wasn't an outlier. Author Sean Fay found that the Times and Sunday Times newspapers in the UK alone ran more than 300 stories on trans issues in 2020, almost all of them negative in tone. Now, the New Zealand media has been relatively free of these kind of damaging narratives, but in September, the Otago Daily Times was heavily criticised for publishing an advert by the group Speak Up for Women, which insists trans women 
are not women, and it's understood that other media companies rejected that ad. And in September, the Media Council censured News Hub over this sentence in a story about a protest aimed at Speak Up for Women. Speak Up for Women has denied being anti-trans, but it maintains that trans women are not women, a distinctly anti-trans sentiment. A majority of the Media Council's members said that breached Principle 4 of the Council's Code, which obliges media to draw a clear distinction between comment and factual reporting. The decision was split, though. Four Media Council members argued it was fair to describe denying trans people a fundamental part of their identity as an anti-trans viewpoint. Now, these flare-ups come in the context of two bills passing through Parliament which will impact on trans rights as well. The Conversion Practices Prohibition Legislation Bill, which would ban organised efforts to suppress people's gender identity or sexuality, and the Births, Deaths, Marriages and Relationships Registration Bill, which would allow people to more easily change the gender marker listed on their birth certificate. Now, all this has many people in the local trans community feeling nervous that they may soon be subject to intense and sometimes maybe even hostile media coverage. Ross Palethorpe is a trans man who works in mental health, and on his blog called Trans Lives Matter and Can Be Boring, he's written about his identity being used as talk radio fodder and as a flashpoint in a wider culture war. Media Watch's Hayden Donnell spoke to Ross about his hopes that the media might better reflect trans people's normal and sometimes even boring lives in future. Kia ora, Ross, and welcome to Media Watch. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, if people can't tell from your accent, you're from the UK where there's this kind of toxic media debate over trans rights. And what's it like for you, just first of all, seeing that media cycle play out back home? It's worrying as someone who lives here that there might be a bit of creep into the media in New Zealand. It does make me feel very vigilant um, whenever I see anything related to transgender rights in New Zealand media. I, I do sort of brace myself for the worst. Back in June, there was some, some articles about it in, um, in News Hub, I think, around uh, trans people in sports, there had been a petition and there was all of the people that were interviewed for the piece were cisgendered people who had opinions that transgender people shouldn't participate in sport. We are talked a lot about, but very rarely are we talked to and very rarely do we get the opportunity to present our opinions. And when we do it, there's a, a certain uh, reluctance to engage because we're not sure we're going to get given a fair shake. We did have this small flare-up or this kind of training run for this uh, when we had mm. Laurel Hubbard being included on the New Zealand Olympic team. Do you think that our media generally handled that well? Better than I had expected. Uh, not as good as I would have hoped. It was good to see lots of quotes coming out in support of Laurel. And it was good to see politicians and other sports people being vocal in their support for that. It felt like it was a bit conditional. And I think there was a lot of unnecessary media generated about it. Like she was never, if you looked at the statistics, I think everybody became an expert in women's heavyweight Olympic weightlifting around that time, the way that everyone is now an epidemiologist. Here was someone who was never going to trouble the podium, who's just another athlete. 
and to sort of have turned it into this, this is the end of women's sports as we know it, this is the end of the Olympics as we know it. The world did not stop turning. Women's weightlifting continues on as it has always done. We see this over and over and over again with trans rights. All of these terrible things that are predicted don't happen because they were never going to. If you have never met someone who's openly transgender, all you have read about them are endless opinion pieces by people who've also never met a transgender person about how we are coming for your gold medals, we are coming for your children, we are going to do X, Y, and Z. If that's the only view that you have of us, and there is no nuance to that, there is no um, recognition that there are people that we are talking about here, and not just some um, vague concept. The thing that you wrote that I, I really enjoyed was that your blog, it was titled Trans Lives Matter Brackets and Can Be Boring. <laughs> and isn't that the stuff that's really missing? Often the focus is just on the fact that they're trans and, and, it's, and they're not portrayed just living normal life. Oh, hugely. I can think of a thousand other things I would rather do than keep abreast of what the media in another country has to say about me, and especially around trans women really victimized and really demonized is this debate you can have women's rights or you can have trans rights where you know it's not it's around it's around the right to dignity and it's around the right to live your life in peace as your authentic self those two things are not not at odds it's a manufactured debate having said that there are genuine uh stories that are going to touch on trans issues i think of stuff like uh, the births, deaths, marriages, and relationship registration bill, which allows people to update the sex marker on their birth certificate, or the conversion therapy bill. And these are democratic processes and public bills that the media is going to cover. Hmm. How can they do that in a way that isn't going to stigmatize and hurt trans people? It's difficult because, I mean, I, I submitted to both of those bills and I made the point when I talked about the BDMRR, as I said, it's, it's a minor administrative point. It's a small number of people will be able to change a single letter on a birth certificate. You know, cisgender people don't have to think about these things and it shouldn't be as much of an issue as it is. So it's not just the media. It's also at a government level, at a systemic level. It's why do these things have to be the big issues that they are? I mean, conversion, I'm not going to call it therapy because trying to force someone out of being their authentic self is not what I would consider to be a therapeutic practice. These are human rights issues. In terms of the media, it's really thinking about this is a, a fundamental issue of human rights. How do we reframe this in terms of we are supporting a group of people to be more comfortable in how they go around their day-to-day -day lives? Do we have to frame this as some massive attack on women's rights? Do we have to really find someone who thinks that this is foretelling the end of Western civilization as we know it? Ross, you raised a complaint about a News Hub story with the headline controversy brewing over transgender children's access to puberty blockers. And that was just about a young trans woman. Now, what was your issue with that story? That was a young person who was put in a very vulnerable position. And instead of just letting her tell her story, it became, you know, we've also talked to this American GP in America uh, for her take on why puberty blockers are bad. The family felt very let down and how that had been portrayed. I'm quite public about that. Is that because it's a story where someone's identity is sort of portrayed as a matter for debate, public debate, yeah. rather than something that's so personal to them? Yeah. And also, it's, this idea that uh, gender identity clinics, sexual health clinics are sort of handing out hormones and puberty blockers like Smarties at Halloween. In actual fact, the process for getting medical support 
as a transgender person is actually quite complicated and the, the criteria is quite rigorous, but there's never any real discussion about what that's actually like. And into that gap, you have, as I said, you know, you had an American GP who's not an expert to provide an opposing view to Otago University's sort of head of pediatrics, someone who's not qualified to talk about it, and you presented it as being of equal weight. And uh, their response was just, we, 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 have an, we have an obligation to present an opposing view. And it's like, do you though? I'm sure if we went back to uh, stuff like the debate over the legalization of homosexuality in the 80s or something like that, we'd find that we in the media platformed a whole bunch of deeply bigoted comments and views in the name of providing that other side. And we'd probably be pretty ashamed of some of the stuff that we printed in our newspapers or broadcast on our radio stations. So is this kind of a consistent feature of any social liberalization? And are we in danger of repeating some of the mistakes of the past when it comes to covering these debates? Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm going to be really interested to see in about 20 years which MPs and which columnists write the half apology around how it was a different time and how they wish they had covered these things differently because now they realise that that was maybe not the right thing to do. The only time I saw people like me represented in any way was footage of AIDS victims, which is such a damaging you know, environment to grow up in. You know, the, the, the way that the British tabloids, and I imagine the New Zealand tabloids, talked about gay rights and things was phenomenally damaging. And we're starting to see it again. And I, I, you know, when I think about young trans and gender non-conforming people who I, who I know, they are just coming into their sense of self and what they see is a media environment which is painting them in this extremely negative light. And then we wonder why mental health statistics for LGBT young people are as, as dire as they are. RNZ has a new podcast which is called Let's Be Transparent and it tells the story of a trans man's transition and how his mother dealt with it. And then after a couple of years of high school, you're driving along to a lovely holiday spot when suddenly she says, So, I think I'm transgender. What the f***? <laughs> okay, that's probably not exactly what she said, but I'm pretty sure that's what my mum was thinking. Kia ora, I'm Joseph Stockhausen. And this is a podcast where I take you on a journey that both my mum and I travelled after I first came out as transgender. This kind of coverage is really important so that young people or, and, their, and their whānau can see that kind of representation and maybe have a little bit of a roadmap for how they can navigate their own medical and social transitions. It can't be the only thing. We are either portrayed generally as being very young. It's all about trans children and trans youth who are very important. I want to just make that clear. But also, I would like to see... It would have been great if Laurel Hubbard had been given the same kind of sporting profile as uh, any other athlete. I would have liked to have known about her training regimen. I would have liked to have heard the, come out, the coming backstory from when she was injured. But instead, the focus was entirely on her identity as a trans person. You think that would be almost more helpful to see trans people just <laughs> doing something in the media that's not related to their identity as a trans person? I think so. Yeah, it's it's you can't you can't be what you can't see. And it goes back to that idea of, our, you know, I, I know transgender people who work in a wide range of fields. And that sort of just seeing people for whom 
their gender identity is a part of who they are and maybe informs sort of the work that they do or their view of the world. But that not being all that they are, I think is really, really important because once you move past this sole part of the identity as being the whole of the person, that's when we start being seen as being part of the community and less of an, a sort of avatar for people's fears and concerns. If you could say anything to a journalist who is looking at covering trans people, trans issues, what would it be? Who's being centred in this story? And what are you trying to get out of it? Has the story had input from somebody who is trans? Is there possibly a trans journalist who could either be on board with you to write it or write it instead? Are you writing about us or are you writing with us? I think is, is a real key thing. It creates a bit of a chilling effect whereby if trans people have this idea that that's how they're going to be portrayed in the media, then we'll stop engaging. That's not what we want. Thank you so much for joining me, Ross. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. That was Ross Palethorpe, a trans man who works as a counsellor, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last Monday it was a case of another Monday, another review of alert level stages for Auckland and other areas, and ample evidence in the media that Aucklanders are over it, including Magic Talk Night's host Graham Hill. G'day, Graham. How you doing, buddy? I'm, I'm pretty good. Okay. Just okay. Just okay today. Just okay? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's not good, mate. Nah, it's all right. No, look, <laughs> stuff it. It doesn't matter. But while that weariness is understandable, Graham Hill had not given in to despair. Uh, next week, with the level three uh, step two, God, my brain's going to explode. Level, man of some rep, uh, retail's going to open and stuff. But I, I feel for the hairdressers and things like that. But we've got to just open the door, walk out on our hind legs with our shoulders back and go, this is the world, let's get on with it. But as everybody knows, it's now vaccination that's the key. And Graham Hill had this message for caller Stu, who said he didn't want any more money spent on vaccinating the Māori population. Just imagine the racial division, the possibilities for antipathy within society. Absolutely poisonous. Um, yeah. I, I know. I don't want to leave any ethnic group behind. I don't. And after that, Magic Talks, Graham Hill moved on to another issue. Oh, sorry, Stu, you're cutting out. Now, on vegetarianism, yeah, is it the way of the future? Will we look back on eating meat as something akin to slavery? Coincidentally, the previous show, Live with Lloyd Burr, also addressed that question. But when it comes to COVID-19, Lloyd Burr's got personal experience. He caught COVID twice as News Hub's Europe correspondent based in the UK, and he lived through even longer lockdowns there than Aucklanders are enduring now. And last Monday, he thought the shift in alert levels that had just been announced for next week in Auckland was good news. A bit of good news for those who have been wanting some kind of date. And when Lloyd Burr also addressed the competing imperative of opening up business as soon as possible with Rod Duke of the Briscoes Group, he sounded pretty pleased with the alert level move too. It's always better than uh, level four, level three. Um, so, you know, we're thrilled about the announcement. But meanwhile on News Talk ZB, which was clearly keenly awaiting Monday's update... COVID alert level decision. Coming up next. Arch government critic Heather Duplessy Allen was nowhere near as thrilled as Rod Duke or Lloyd Burr about Auckland businesses having to wait another week. 
that it is utterly pointless to be waiting a week. I mean, somebody says, and what an utter insult to say. It gives businesses time to prepare. What the hell does she think we've been doing for the last three months? I, honestly, I don't think anybody needs time to prepare right now, do you? I think right now what you want to do is just open your doors and get on with it. And having laid her cards on the table like that, she asked the boss of the business umbrella group Heart of the City, Viv Beck, this leading question. To know that there are retailers being kept shut for an extra week for politics, how do you feel about that? Oh, devastated. And then, noting that there were only three people at the time in ICU with COVID-19, why wait? Heather Duplessis-Allen asked the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. Minister, that, that the, you the even say, with respect, that's what we're trying to do. that you even say to Aucklanders that an option is to just keep them shut is just so petulant. I just, I, I, I can't... What are you hoping to achieve by saying something like that? What I'm saying is that is the the announcement that we made a couple of Fridays ago that gave a very clear target for everybody for when Auckland moves in to the red level. In between now and then, we can do these things to move through the steps that we've previously announced. And Grant Robertson, who's used to this sort of hectoring on his appearances on that show every Monday, didn't push back at that accusation of petulance. But Heather Duplessis-Allen herself did. So, yeah... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apologise because obviously calling the, the Deputy Prime Minister petulant is probably not the best form by me. I'm going to explain why I did that, but we'll take a break and then I'll explain it to you. So just get my thoughts together, 16 past six. And having gathered her thoughts during the ad break, Heather Duplessis-Allen then came back with this. So the reason I use the word petulant is because um, what Grant Robertson essentially just said is, Auckland, we could have done nothing. We could have just left you but we've decided to move you down the levels a little bit, right? Which is another way of saying, listen here, be grateful for what is happening, don't complain about it. And there she was doing what ZB hosts often do, bolstering her own side of the argument after the guest was safely off the line and unable to respond. Her main argument, though, which was shared by many others in the media, was that if more than 80% of Aucklanders have been double-jabbed, well, that should be enough to open up more. Though next up on her show, her own NZME colleague Fran O'Sullivan said it wasn't so simple when you look at a few facts and figures, and she also said she found little evidence of petulance either. I didn't feel it was petulant. I, I, you know, I can't, you could kind of see where it was going, but I think really what I do find quite interesting about it, because I read data that was sent out to us, um, you know, prior to the actual press conference. So you had a bit of a sense of projections on which they were basing it on. And the median scenarios had hospital um, cases per week, you know, escalating up to 1,400 by, by the 22nd of November. And Fran O'Sullivan went on to point out to Heather Duplessis-Allen it's not as simple as being held hostage by the slack, the scared or the stupid who have not yet had the jab. You know, there's two views to it. There's views of older people who are concerned that despite vaccination they won't have the same uh, strength in their own immune systems to combat uh, the virus, and, and that is true. I mean, you look at the rest-home people yep. who are hospitalised, you know, look, and then you've got the younger people. Yeah, but the, the trouble is, and then the views are relevant, but the views should only... I mean, right now we need to be getting on with the science, don't we? But Fran, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Fran O'Sullivan, NZME's business commentator, 25 past six. The straw men hastily erected by News Talk ZB hosts on the fly on the air during this pandemic is nothing new, but they don't usually get demolished quite as quickly as that one last Monday, especially by their own colleagues. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night during Lately with Karen Hay, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.